the Spitalfields Festival podcast with me, Sarah Moorpeach. So this is Princelet Street, number 13, a landmark trust house where a load of the artists in this year's Spitalfields Festival are staying. And this is our first podcast with Liam Byrne. Oh, there's roadworks outside. Hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> nice bell. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> nice authentic roadworks. <laughs> yeah, I'm into them too. Now come in. Yes, please, sir. Thank you. Well, this is nice. This is not exactly what we had in mind. We were thinking we're going to be in a really beautiful wood-panelled mm. drawing room with bone china, and instead it's sort of semi-plastic <laughs> mugs in a kitchen. But that's okay. Our fantasy <laughs> visions of what historical living is like just never really turned out to be... <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. How much do you care whether something is like authentic and is exactly how it would have been? Um, for me, it's not so much about uh, the accuracy of the reconstruction, but what is important to me is depth of understanding. The end result is not uh, to create a historically accurate recreation, um, but the end result is just actually to play more beautifully through this deeper understanding. So I was going to ask you, because on the um, opening night of the festival in House of Monteverdi, you played a piece that you've done before, so it's a... It's a sort of electronic reworking of mm. Cipriano de Rore's madrigal done by another vile composer. Just explain it. Right. It's, too, it's way well, too complicated for me to explain. The original piece is this beautiful madrigal called Ancorche Col Partire by mm. Cipriano de Rore, which is probably from the 1550s. Um, and one of the kind of most important solo repertoires for a viola de gamba player in 16th century Italy was what we call the viola bastarda way of playing where a player would take a well-known madrigal, like Ancorche mm -hmm. Partire, and compose slash improvise slash invent uh, highly virtuosic ornamentations on top of that madrigal. Um, and so in the, in the sort of 17th century, 16th, 17th century performance practice, you would have a viol player just playing these super um, shreddy scales, a little bit like this kind of thing. And this is happening while there's a group of madrigalists singing the madrigal right next to you. Perhaps, or more simply, while an organist or a harpsichordist is playing an intabulation of the madrigal with their, okay. with their two hands. That's very impressive counterpoint. <laughs> I think that's, that's the first, amazing. I think that's the tenor and soprano lines yeah. from the very first yeah. frame. Um, and what do you then do with what you've just described, the madrigal and the viola bastada version of it in your piece? Uh, so when I was working, uh, when I was first touring with the Icelandic composer and producer Valke Sigurdsson, we made a version of this piece together where I gave him the original madrigal uh, as a MIDI file and then he arranged this beautiful electronic version of the madrigal, which was basically uh, literally what the madrigal was itself. And so it gave me the structure that I needed in order to make the virtuosic uh, viol, that viola bastarda solo bit, work. Uh, so what we've done is actually, I mean, every single note that I'm playing is 
from the 1592 publication and is very much in the style of, well, it's pretty much exactly as a viol player would have played it then, if I maybe put so bold as to assert that. Uh, and then Valkyr is being very faithful to the original structure of the madrigal, but it's just using a, a, a palette of uh, sounds that's a lot more modern. So the notes are like completely authentic. Literally, yes. <laughs> that's, that's what's That's what's so beautiful about it. And if you... If you do a performance of it, which I've also done with uh, with an organ, you especially with a variety of, of registrations, you realize that it's uh, it's not a million miles away from what Valkyr has created, actually. Um, introduce me to your instrument. Well, this is uh, a viola da gamba. It is a 1982 copy of an instrument with a bit of a um, an interesting history. The the original now lives in Brussels, but it was made in the 1680s in St. Paul's Churchyard by an English maker called Edward Lewis. It was made in the churchyard? Mm-hmm. St. Paul's Churchyard was a hotbed of, in, of string instrument making in uh, 17th century London. This is St. Paul's Cathedral in London, yeah. the churchyard of. Mm-hmm. So this instrument is based on <coughs> based on one of those? It's Yes, it's based on this in its slightly later form, because then after the viol fell out of popularity in Britain... Um, it was still really going strong in France, and so uh, French players were buying up old English instruments in the early 18th century, and they were obsessed with the old English instruments. They thought they sounded much better than the French ones. Um, but they would buy the old English instruments, chop the necks off, and put on uh, seven-string necks, which was the French fashion. And you have seven strings on it. I have seven strings. So the, this is a copy of an instrument that was originally built in England, but was then converted in France in the 18th century. And so this is it's copied in its current surviving state, which is its converted state. It's really beautiful looking at it with your arm holding it with your tattoo and all of its tattoos. Well, this ta- this tattoo is actually the sound hole from my other viola, the gamma. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So it's a bit, I'm a bit, maybe I'm a bit geeky. <laughs> and a carved it. head at the top. Indeed. So how, how does it sound? Oh, uh, well, it sounds let's, like... Let's hear a bit. It goes very, very low. What note is that? The lowest note, I call it uh, an A. It's what I call an what A. What do you mean you call it an A? <laughs> um, so this instrument is actually tuned to French Baroque chamber pitch. Okay, which is like um, a tone lower than exactly, modern yeah. orchestral pitch, or exactly. maybe even a bit more than yeah. that. Uh, so uh, it sounds as a G. Mm-hmm. So the G below... Uh, it's a fourth below uh, the bottom string of a cello. It's the G that is, it's actually only a minor third above the bottom note of a normal double bass. Um, wow. So it's, uh, it's really kind of pushing the, the boundaries of what's capable on a, on, yeah. a, on a box this size. It's always struck me that you're in like a really immediate, dynamic, responsive relationship to the sound that's coming out. That's true. It is, uh, it is a very light and very breathable instrument. Uh, the way that I describe the holding it in your legs is actually when I, when I teach someone how to play it, it's not so much that you're holding it up with your legs, you just sort of form a cradle with your legs that it sits in. 
So once it takes a while to feel comfortable with it, but once you finally get it, it's a very nice physical relationship. And very interestingly, the, the position of the arms uh, and the hands when you're playing a viola da gamba are almost identical to uh, basic uh, second position arms in French Baroque dance. Have you studied Baroque dance? I have, not for a long time. But when I was younger, I was um, pretty serious about ballet and spent a couple of years uh, getting serious about Baroque dance as well. During the festival, you've got another couple of things coming up. You're going to be doing a piece by Greg Saunier, mm -hmm. Fugazi-related, and then you're also going to be working on Schumann Street. So you're doing one of the one of the songs from Schumann's Dichterliebe. Yes. Um, so, you know, we've talked about when you take a piece of Baroque repertoire designed for your viola da gamba, and yeah. then you play with it and, and, in a way, interpret it for the 21st century. What happens when you deal with repertoire, sort of original repertoire that is not designed, like Schumann, not mm. designed for the viola da gamba, and doesn't come from that musical language at all. Right. Like, what's your starting point with that? Well, I mean, with the Schumann, the starting point kind of has to be the, the piece itself. Um, but uh, briefly, I mean, the thing that's particularly exciting and useful about that process is that then it, uh, you, when you start with the music, there's a sort of musical need, and then you ask the viola da gamba how it can meet that need using its skill set. Uh, and it's precisely that process of playing contemporary music on the viola da gamba and playing music that, you know, I don't, music where I don't feel like I know how it should go. Uh, it's that process that has actually really deepened my understanding of the viola da gamba's sound and how it behaves, and has actually kind of unlocked. Uh, a wider range of colors and gestures that have then in turn deepened my uh, performances of the historical repertoire through, you know, by using things I've learned from playing contemporary music. That's amazing. It is. And kind it of is. what one would hope, right? That it would work both ways. It is. It was very unexpected. One of the, one of the, one of the main things actually was just when I first started playing with uh, amplification about five years ago, I realized that uh, the microphone was picking up all of these things in my playing that I didn't want to transmit. And so uh, by being close mic'd, I, was, uh, I learned to get rid of certain sounds and encourage other sounds in my playing. And then I, uh, I woke up one morning and realized, oh my God, I've actually just removed projection from my sound production technique, which is exactly what a 17th century viol player would have done. So in a way, taking part in Schumann Street is is perfect because you're going to be in a drawing room. Uh, we, I, Do actually, you know we, which room you're in yet? Yes, uh, Mara and I have been assigned to the kitchen, which we're very oh, excited no. about. Oh no, so we're like doing a practice run. It won't <laughs> be this kitchen, but <laughs> will it be a more authentic kitchen? I think it, I've seen pictures of it and it looks pretty authentic. <laughs> okay, amazing. Um, I'm dying to know which song you've chosen, you and Mara Carlyle. We went for, we went out into left field, for far left field for the Alta Börse leader. It's quite near the end of the cycle, right? I think it's the it, last one. Is it the one. last song? Yeah. And it's, it's about like these kind of old, dark, fairy tale songs. It involves a lot of uh, weird German romantic imagery. 
references to how the size of great cathedrals and great bridges and giants and and but it's it's quite a a, a beautiful thing. So it's really it's really Sturm und Drang for a while, and then they th- basically they throw this giant. They build this huge coffin and throw it in the sea, and it sinks to the bottom of the sea. And then you get this incredible diminished chord, and then this beautiful syncopation, and then uh, it gets all soft. And he says, "Do you know why the big coffin was so heavy and sank to the bottom of the sea?" because I sank all of my pain and all of my love inside. And then it ends, and then there's this like, beautiful arpeggiated play out. Um, so I think we're going to be doing something that, that plays with that, um, that moment of change and moment of realization. How much time have you spent together on it so far? And like, what, have you, what have you been doing in those sessions? Oh, man. Well, Mara and I have a pretty specific creative process. Whenever Mara and I work together, which is something that happens quite a lot, I mean, it always begins with getting in the same room. And then there's a good hour or two of figuring out where the other person is in their emotional landscape at that time and a kind of tuning of our uh, sort of mindsets. This sounds really pretentious, I mean, but we basically, it's not so much intentional as it is just uh, this is the pattern that has emerged. Uh, I should say you're also really good friends, right? Yes, so that's this true. is not just an artistic relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we've spent quite a few days um, talking about it. Uh, and, and then we, uh, for us, the process of actually making notes happen is a very, very slow one. We just sort of dip our toes in. We'll maybe do maybe two chords. Uh, and then we'll have another session and then dip our toes in a little bit further. And then often, very last minute, we'll plunge in. Uh, and then, but it's a lot of kind of the, the introduction to this process is a lot of planting seeds for ideas that then come to fruition later on. And what about being in this house? So we're at number 13 Princelet Street, mm. which is very beautiful. It's an incredible and surreal place to come back to. Uh, and the thing that is sort of most strong about it is that it's so specifically historically London in a really, really obvious and easily imminently palpable way. Uh, and the fun thing about that is that it really does tune your brain to the kind of historical cultural identity of Spitalfields. Um, and it really kind of puts this festival in a kind of social and historical context uh, in this particular part of London um, which has, of course, such a sort of often referenced history, um, but also which has a very interesting uh, present. And so it's really nice to be in a house that has like, such a strong uh, vibe of this particular neighborhood because uh, it sort of reminds you of the, the kind of the integration with this very local community that is kind of so essential to a lot of Spitalfield's work. The Spitalfields Festival podcast with me, Sarah Moore-Peach. You can listen in on other conversations with Spitalfields artists in our special podcast series. Just go to spitalfieldsmusic.org.uk.